Hey guys, and welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. I'm your host, Lacey Dunn, future registered dietitian, here to spread the scientific knowledge in the worlds of fitness and nutrition. Today, we are going to talk about the different types of fats, insulin resistance, and the cause of obesity. So let's jump right in. Okay, y'all, today we have an amazing guest, Chris Masterjohn, PhD. He runs his masterclass. He puts out a wealth of knowledge in the fields of nutrition and science and all of the above. So, Chris, why don't you tell my listeners who you are, what you do, a little bit of a background about yourself, and then we can dive into the topics from there. Sure. Uh, Right now, I'm mainly a consultant, researcher, and content producer, ChrisMasterJohnPhD.com is the home to everything I do on those lines. I have a PhD in nutritional sciences. I had gone the traditional route in academia to do a postdoc as a researcher after my PhD for a couple of years and then became a full-time tenure-track faculty member in the health and nutrition science department at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York. Um, My PhD came from University of Connecticut. My postdoc was at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And uh, after doing that traditional route through academia for a while, I decided to leave it and go out on my own. And so now I do consulting to help people get healthier. And I just make lots of podcasts, videos, and blog posts and other content uh, to help people in other ways as well. Yeah, I, I love it so much. And to my listeners, if you guys don't know about the content that Chris puts out, it is just incredible. It From ketosis to glycolysis to the Krebs cycle, everything and above, to methylation. Like Chris puts out a wealth of knowledge, so make sure you check out his website if you want to learn more, if you want to apply what you learn. Very helpful. So Chris... What essentially got you into nutrition? I do have that question. I think you could trace it back really far, but I, I think the real origin of it is in my teenage years where I just saw a powerful effect in the health of my family. Mm-hmm. So my mom had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and had struggled with chronic pain for a long time. And the conventional medicine route didn't really get her anywhere. So she Mm. wound up pursuing all kinds of alternative health modalities. And that was my introduction to it. So it was always something I was into. And my own interest in nutrition, even while I was not planning on pursuing any kind of career in it, led me down eventually to veganism, which did not work for me at all. (laughs) And uh, and I, I pulled myself out of the rut that veganism had gotten me into through learning about the work of Weston Price, who was a a dental researcher. He was the first director of the American, or what became the American Dental Association's research institute. But then he, after 25 years doing that, he went off on his own to travel the world and try to understand why some groups that were isolated from modern society didn't get tooth decay. And he wound up kind of inadvertently becoming one of the pioneers of nutritional anthropology, where he documented traditional diets of many groups that were on the out, because he was doing this in the 1920s and 30s, where trade of modern goods was starting to to displace all of the traditional diets with white flour, white sugar, white Mm -hmm. rice, syrups, and canned goods. And what he basically found was 
all of these groups were really, really healthy when they were eating their traditional diets, even though the traditional diet of the Arctic was totally different from the traditional diet of the Swiss valleys, which, and then in Africa, you could study 15 different indigenous groups and find 15 totally different diets. And despite the fact that they were all so different, they all had the same result where they were remarkably healthy in ways that went way beyond their teeth and into freedom from all kinds of degenerative diseases that plague modern society. And then they would transition to the modern diets and their health would degenerate. So he wrote his magnum opus from this work and he, he didn't call it nutrition and tooth decay. He called it nutrition and physical degeneration because he just witnessed this incredibly profound transition from physical resilience to physical degeneration in every imaginable way. And the I, I think nowadays we look back and at this and be like, well, of course, if they're eating 90% of their diet is white flour, white sugar, and white rice syrups and canned goods, and they're not eating anything else, of course, they're going to physically degenerate. Mm -hmm. But and, and so when I was a vegan, like that was that part of it wasn't that big of a surprise. But what really struck me was how he isolated the things that were contributing to their health. So what he documented was that every one of these groups consumed some source of fat-soluble vitamins and not only consumed these sources but put special emphasis in their culture on procuring these foods even when they were difficult to obtain. And he divided these foods into four categories. One was egg, eggs, whole eggs, including egg yolks and organ meats. One was dairy products. One was the animal life of the sea, so fish and shellfish. And one was insects and, and small animals such as frogs. And not all of the groups ate all of these things, but all of them ate at least and emphasized at least one of these categories of foods for their nutritive value and, and emphasized in their cultural traditions about how health-promoting they were. And often some, you know, some of the groups consumed two or three of these categories. And so what struck me was even before I was a vegan – I wasn't eating most of these foods like the it wasn't just about the deficiencies uh, the potential deficiencies of veganism for me it was about the standard of nutrient density that uh, that he emphasized like I, I didn't eat a lot of shellfish like I, I never ate organ meats right so what happened to me was I while I was reading this book in fact it was the tooth decay issue was what drew uh, what made me interested in the first place because w on the tail end of my veganism, I went to the dentist and I found out that I had over a dozen cavities and needed two root canals. Oh wow! I I had always be, been predisposed to tooth decay, so I had like maybe six or seven cavities as a child and maybe two as a teenager. But you know, as a child, like not. Not in one sing, right? Like yeah. go in one year, have one cavity. Go in the next year, have a different cavity, right? Here, I was an adult where the rate of tooth decay should be fairly low, and I go in and I and I need, I never needed a root canal. Two root canals over a dozen cavities. That's crazy, right? Yeah. And so sure. when I'm reading Weston Price's work and he's talking about immunity to tooth decay, I'm like, hell yeah, <laughs> like that's I'm all about immunity to tooth decay right now. And um, but what what really shocked me was. 
I had developed a, a serious problem with anxiety disorders that really also traced their way back to my, at least to my teenage years, but, but had gotten vastly worse while I was a vegan. They basically just disappeared uh, inadvertently when I changed my diet according to the principles that I had learned from Weston Price. So that was really the thing that pushed me on this fat path going forward. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's been a long journey and there's a lot of other parts of the story, but that was the key transition. Wow, that's crazy. And do you think that the increased nutrients is what contributed to reducing the anxiety? As an anxiety person, oh, yeah, for, I love oh, yeah. hearing about that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you mentioned methylation before. I, I, that would be my first target to try to explain that. There's a lot of things that could be wrong on a vegan diet for someone who has increased needs for animal-based nutri- nutrients. Mm-hmm. You know, they're pretty low in zinc. Uh, some people need to eat dietary cholesterol. That's not really emphasized because we we make it ourselves, but I think it's neglected that at least one or two percent of the population carries genes that impair the ability to make enough cholesterol. And you know, no, like not to the point where they have some kind of clinical disorder from it, but I think probably to the point where eating cholesterol in animal foods actually does have. An, an important impact on health, and that could certainly have an impact on the brain because the brain is very dispro- disproportionately rich in cholesterol. It's 2% of the body weight, 25% of the body's cholesterol. So there's lots of things like that, but I really think like vitamin B12, I mm-hmm. think some of the amino acids like methionine that are very rich in animal products and, uh, and uh, a handful of others that are are contributing to the methylation system are probably the biggest impacts on mental health. Yeah, I definitely, in regards to vegan diets, it makes me afraid when people go vegan because you can potentially miss out on so many important nutrients in your body. And then with cholesterol, I'm like, it. cholesterol is so important in regards to uh, everything in our body. So our hormones that play into our thyroid, that play into our metabolism. So, and then you look back at like the whole, you know, the cholesterol phase where everybody's like, don't eat those eggs. Those eggs are so bad for you. Don't eat that uh, cholesterol so bad for you. And then now we're like, okay, you need that cholesterol. But at the same time, your body makes the cholesterol and it just confuses the world. So um, let's <laughs> dive into these topics. So let's sure. start with our discussion on fats. What are the best type of fats and what are their effects on health? So there are saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, and as we know, the ADA, the Nutrition and Dietetics, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, everybody has their different opinions on what's good for you, what's bad for you, what causes different diseases. So can you dive into the different types of fats and why they are classified as such? Sure. So there's a few different ways of classifying fats, and you you alluded to one of them, which is based on the number of double bonds that mm-hmm. they have. They can also be classified according to their chain length. So basically, all fatty acids are strings of carbon atoms, and they're hydrocarbons. So they're you know a chain of carbons, and they have a bunch of hydrogen stuffed into all the empty spaces, and s- those can be Some are shorter than others, so we have long-chain fatty acids, medium-chain fatty acids, and short-chain fatty acids. 
And then we can also classify them by their saturation. So if they have no double bonds, they're saturated. If they have one double bond, they're monounsaturated. And if they have two or more double bonds, they're polyunsaturated. And then in reality, they are there's a bunch of individual fatty acids that are all in those categories. And I think that it it doesn't it's not always going to be the case that those classifications line up perfectly with their health effects because those classifications are based on their chemistry mm-hmm. and health is a whole nother level of analysis. You know, when you eat a food that has these fatty acids and tons of other things in them, what happens to your disease risk is a whole like many levels of analysis above what is the chemical structure of this fatty acid. So I think we have to be careful there. But nevertheless, there there are some general properties that do play into health. So for example, the the shorter the chain length, the more easily burned for energy they are. And as you get uh, as you get under 12 carbons, so 10 carbon fatty acids, eight carbons and below, where you're mostly finding these fatty acids, 15% in coconut oil, about 4% maybe in butter, and not really elsewhere in the food supply. Um, those fatty acids are, are really easily burned for energy. And if you were to consume MCT oil, for example, which is an isolate of coconut oil that takes out that 15% that are classified as 10 carbons or below. If you replace all your fat with MCT oil, which I don't really recommend, but if you did that, you'd probably create a spontaneous caloric deficit of about 150 or no, about 90 calories a day uh, just because they're more easily burned for energy. If you were to replace all your fat with coconut oil, you'd get about one-sixth that effect. So it's really small and probably not perceptible, but Maybe over the course of years, having a spontaneous 15-calorie deficit does something. I don't know, um, but definitely it's a for if you. There are studies showing that it's easier to lose fat if you're on a hypocaloric diet where you replaced a, a large portion of your fat with MCT oil. Uh, so that's that's one interesting property. Um, Another interesting property about short-chain fatty acids is that they're really good at nourishing the intestines. And so these short-chain fatty acids are pretty much almost exclusively found in uh, in ruminant fats, mainly in butter fat. So butter, the, the 4% or so of fatty acids in butter that are short-chain uh, or that are uh, I mentioned that I mentioned before in, in being under 10 carbons, those are actually pretty much all short chain fatty acids. And the most famous one is butyrate, which mm-hmm. is actually name, named after butter. The The Greek word for butter is butyro. And if you, if you kind of mangle that into English, you get uh, butyrate. <laughs> so um, now butyrate's mainly in t- produced in your intestines. If you eat dietary fiber, a lot of the microbes in your gut make butyrate and that nourishes your intestines. But a lot of us, because of what we eat or maybe other reasons, uh, have bad guts, bad gut microbiomes, and we don't make enough butyrate. And you, uh, it would take a lot of butter, but if you, <laughs> there, they've, there are some studies with butyrates, oral butyrate supplements and uh, butyrate enemas depending on whether you're trying to impact the small intestine or the large intestine, that show that exogenous butyrate 
is really, really good for the gut, and it can reverse some of the signs of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and various gut issues. Now, you'd have to eat a stick of butter a day in order to get the amount of butyrate from those supplements. And so that's a hell of a lot of butter. But, um, but you know, there you have it. So, uh, so that's looking at chain length. And then the other way of, other main way of classifying fatty acids is their number of double bonds. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the most people the, know about. That's, yeah, and that's what most people know about, right? So saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated. Um, Across foods, you're getting saturated. Generally, animal fats are higher than plant fats in saturated fat, and most people know that, but I think what most people are totally unaware of is that the most saturated plant fat, excuse me, the most saturated fat in the world is a plant fat, coconut oil, Mm -hmm. and most animal fats have not that much. And even if you look across different animal fats, if you're looking at something like lard, everyone thinks lard is really high in saturated fat, but actually... It's, uh, it's fatty acid composition is, is fairly similar to olive oil. It has a little bit more saturated fat, but it's very monounsaturated. Um, so anyway, the, the reason that these are, are interesting to health kind of depends on who you talk to. So a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the mainstream would point out that saturated fats among these are the most likely to raise your cholesterol levels and that polyunsaturated fats are the most likely to lower your cholesterol levels. But what most people never hear about is that polyunsaturated fats are uniquely vulnerable to oxidative damage. And for people who don't have a chemistry or biology background, I would, uh, I would just liken this to a biological form of rust. So if you leave your bicycle out in the rain, uh, the oxygen and the water and everything is going to eventually make it start rusting. People are familiar with that. If you took a bottle of soybean oil and you opened it and you left it on the counter in the heat for a few months, it's going to smell gross. Mm-hmm. And the reason it smells gross is because just just like the rust that happened to the metal, you have oxidative damage happening to the fats. They go rancid and they're gross. Well, they do the same thing inside your body and inside your body that contributes to degenerative diseases. It contributes to the wear and tear of aging. It contributes to why your skin might get wrinkled and spotty as you get older. That's a process called lipid peroxidation. And out of those three classes, it is only polyunsaturated fats that are vulnerable to that process. And that's because what the, the vulnerable part of the fatty acid is the carbon that's situated between two double bonds. And if you have zero double bonds as in a saturated fatty acid, you don't have that spot. Even if you have one double bond, like in a monounsaturated fatty acid, you still don't have that spot because you can only have a carbon between two double bonds and a fatty acid that has two or more double bonds. So all of the polyunsaturated fatty acids are uniquely vulnerable to oxidation in that manner. And um, you know, nevertheless, that doesn't mean that they're they're evil or they're bad or you want to completely avoid them. In fact, some of those fatty acids are are essential. Essential fatty acids are fatty acids that we can't make ourselves and they're actually kind of like vitamins in the sense that if you this would be almost impossible to do with foods but if you were to create a diet that had zero essential fatty acids in it you develop all kinds of problems with your hormones and with uh with your skin and your immune system just everything would start going haywire um so we need them in small amounts but 
I actually think that if you were to design a diet that had minimal disease risk, you would want polyunsaturated fats to be about two to four percent of your calories and uh, of your total calories would be kind of the upper limit. And then the remainder of your fat should probably be a mix of monounsaturated fats and saturated fats. And in fact, if you were to just sample traditional fats before the last century, like anything that your great grandmother could have used in the kitchen, that's what you'd have because the only fats that are really, really high in polyunsaturated in polyunsaturated fatty acids are the modern industrial vegetable oils like soybean oil, canola oil, uh, cottonseed oil, corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, and things like that. Wow, that's very interesting, especially since um, nowadays I see a huge push for the polyunsaturated fats um, and demonizing of the saturated. So... I definitely want to point out that in regards to these categories, like you said, these fats have different um, composition. So like you said, with the butyric acid, G is an example that has some and it has a different composition. It's not just a mono, poly or saturated. All these fats have more than one type of fatty acid in them. So I think that's a problem when we categorize certain fats as good or bad because they they are not just one type of fat. They have different types of fatty acids that have different effects on our health. And I think a problem... Well, well also it's... Go, sorry, go ahead. I think... No, you can go ahead. Okay, well, I was just going to add to that. Like, I totally agree with you. what you said. And I would add to that that it goes beyond just the fat, but also the nutrients, right? Mm -hmm. If you are cutting out eggs because of their cholesterol or their saturated fat, you're cutting out the choline, you're cutting out the biotin, you're cutting out the B vitamins. Um, same with any of these foods. They all have a unique nutrient profile that is not just fat, but is also vitamins and minerals. And whenever you focus on one of these fatty acids or one of these classes of fatty acids, you're inadvertently changing all kinds of other things about your diet. Correct. Yeah, I think that's a huge problem. Um, and another thing in regards to fatty acid research is it becomes a problem when there is a research study done on, let's say they use lard, and then they contribute their study and the results to lard itself. That does not play like there's we don't know the specific fatty acid that caused the effect and then we don't know that the change in diet as well as the genetic predisposition could have caused an effect so I think in regards to choosing a fat that's good or bad it it's hard to do and I don't think it's actually doable at this point what are your thoughts well well I think I mean you make that sound a little bit hopeless. <laughs> um, I, I, I think. I think. I, I mean. I think you. Ha I think so. I, there's two things here. One is, one is, one is what you are trying to know, and then the other is what you're trying to do. Right. Those are two separate things. You don't need to know everything to do something, and uh, we do things all the time, having almost zero knowledge. At, like you don't know what car is coming down the road when you mm -hmm. cross the street, but you just know that from force of habit and laws and expectations. If you look both ways before you cross the road, you're probably going to be alive when you get to the other side, right? So um, so I think in terms of what we're trying to know, it's, it's really hard to 
it's hard to do research, but what's really hard is to make the proper inferences from studies. And I think this is what you were getting at yeah. with that, which is when you when you conduct a study, you're you're conducting that study in a specific context. And you really have to be careful when you generalize from that context. And so to take to take lard with an animal, like let's say someone fed a mouse lard and it uh, did X, right? So there's lots of things that you have to be careful around those inferences. So first of all, they fed lard in the context of a highly refined diet that had sugar in it to make it more palatable, that had this and that, and had zero to do, you know, it was deficient in dietary fiber. The mice were probably not producing butyrate in their intestines to, pr to protect them from the metabolic effects of whatever the fat was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that context is important. The fact that it was fed to a mouse, which might be genetically different from a human and how it responds is important. The fact that they might be using a strain of mouse that gets fat really easily, which is what they do, right? In all of these studies, you breed mice until you find the mouse that gets the disease you want to study, and then you just use that mouse. And you, the reason you do that is because you don't want to waste a bunch of money caring for mice when you're trying to look at obesity that when they don't get fat. You don't want to waste a bunch of mice, in, uh, a mice money, food, and, and all the other resources studying mice to try to look at cancer when they don't get cancer, right? But what, what that also means is that when you inbreed mice over generations to develop this mouse that reliably gets fat in response to minor dietary changes, providing that you don't give them a wheel to run on in the cage and so they get zero activity and they're depressed all the time, uh, which is the oh, other thing you so, always do. so, so tragic. Well, it's, you know, when I was, so <laughs> when I was in graduate school, um, I, I was... I was discussing research methodology with, with so someone and uh, they didn't want any hamster wheels or toys in the cage and the vets wanted them because they're good for the mental health of the animals. And they said, look, like everybody knows that the animals don't get fat when you give them toys to play with or, or like wheels to run on or anything. And I said, uh, I said, well, wouldn't it be more realistic if you had them like able to, to do those things? And they said, we're not about realistic, we're about control. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the idea, right? You're, you're designing a study to highly control the variables so that you can pinpoint X caused Y, but in order to pinpoint it, you've distorted the context so much that it's no longer realistic for a mouse, that mouse is not a realistic representation of mice, and mice are not a realistic representation of humans. So it's not that the studies aren't useful, it's that if you're not the researcher who knows the background of all those things that you did to produce that result, then you're probably missing a lot of information you need to be able to think carefully about what that result means. And if you are the researcher who's under a lot of pressure to publicize the findings and get in the press all the time to advance your career, which isn't everyone, but which you know is a, is a lot of people are subject to that pressure depending on their institution and what their ambitions are, then you're probably going to uh, basically prey on the lack of knowledge in the population 
to get the media who want to be sensationalist to to publish the findings without getting people to understand all those decisions that went into that and how they impact what they mean. But, you know, that despite all that, that doesn't mean that the research is meaningless. It just means that you have to slowly build your case. And when you have this highly refined environment like feeding a mouse lard, oh, and the other thing is, you know, what was the lard representative of, right? Because the lard the fatty acids in the lard can be totally different depending on what the pig is eating. So that's another factor. Like, can you generalize from that lard to lard or lard when the pigs eat coconuts or the lard when the pigs are raised on pasture? That's another separate question. But, but anyway, it doesn't mean that the research is useless. It means that you have to be really thoughtful and careful about how you generalize. And you have to realize that all these studies are are part of a big body of evidence that you're slowly working towards a better understanding of over time. And that and so that's that's if you want to know, but if but we all have to do, right? We all have to eat something and none of us are going to wait 60 years to figure out what to eat for breakfast this morning. <laughs> and so I think uh, you know you you can't conflate the standard of what gives you certainty of knowledge with the standard of what do I need to know to be able to do what I need to do, like mm-hmm. like eat breakfast? And so I think when you're deciding what to eat, I, I think you want to you wanna acknowledge that, hey, you know, I ultimately don't know what this meal is going to do to me in 60 years, but I want to make a good guess. And so you have to acknowledge that uncertainty and just look at some things like, look, prior to the advent of modern civilization, most people on earth, who did pretty well for their circumstances health-wise, were eating foods that were naturally available that didn't include the modern vegetable oils, did include animal fats, and did include uh, like the Mediter- like the uh, olive oil, for example, common in, in temperate regions like the Mediterranean, did include things like coconut oil and palm oil in the tropical regions. So I think it's safer to just take your selection of fats from what the human race was using for millions of years and forego the things that have only been around for the last 50 years or 60 or 70 years, uh, I think that's a, a smart choice because there's so much that we don't know. Yeah, you explained that very well, a lot better than I did. So Thank you for that. And I'm glad you also are a firm believer and lover of those more natural sources. I know for myself, I'm definitely a huge fan of coconut oil, of nuts, of olive oil, um, and definitely less of those processed fats, especially um, I don't think I ever have any foods consumed with trans fats. So all about those natural fat sources. And I feel that if people get a variety that is key. A variety of nutrients, a variety of foods, that is key for overall health. Um, So let's dive into what is the cause of obesity? So I don't think there is, I don't want to go ahead and say there's a specific cause because I don't really believe there is, but what are your thoughts? Is it carbs? Is it fat? What's going on? I think that depends on your level of analysis and it highly contextual d- depending on the individual. But I mean, the, the simple, easy answer to that 
is that people get fat when they consume more calories than they expend. Mm -hmm. It gets a lot harder to translate that into what is, you know, like most people don't even want to know the cause of obesity. Most people want to know how they can lose weight, right? People have a specific body image they want to attain. And the answer to that isn't even the same as the answer of how to not get fat. I mean, you really do have to eat somewhat differently to not get fat than to lose weight. And a good example of that is, you know, just to make the point, is that your protein intake is determined by your lean body mass. It's not determined by your calories, really. And in fact, when you when you cut calories, you probably need more protein, if anything, rather than less. Oh, I agree. But even if but even if you keep protein the same, like let's just say that you need um, 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight for optimal health. Like let's, let's just go with that. It's controversial, but just take that number. Well, if you cut your calories um, to lose weight, you're gonna have to eat a higher percentage protein in your overall diet if you eat the exact amount of protein, right? Because if that means you eat 120 grams of protein a day, then that means that when you cut your calories, you eat 120 grams of protein a day. So that's a different diet than if you than to not get fat, which would be eat 120 grams of protein a day and eat enough calories to sustain your weight, right? That's a it's a it's a per, you would perceive that as a higher protein diet, yeah, because like in your percentage. sandwich is going to have a higher meat to everything else ratio in it, you know, correct, um, and, and so. And so I think that's an important point that it's it's kind of a sep- it's I think understanding how people get fat is very important to understanding how can people lose weight but it's not actually the same question and it's it's different it's a different question to say what caused the obesity epidemic on a population level than to say why did I gain 2 pounds in the last month but I I think I think there are I think if you look historically, like why are why are on a population level average people fatter now than they were 50 years ago? That like it's indisputable that that's the case, right? And I think that's because of mainly two things. One is that we have an increased abundance of highly palatable foods mm-hmm. that are designed by food companies to make you not be able to eat just one as they brag about and uh and and we don't move that much anymore right so if if you're working in an office and you have a bag of chips on the table and at most you need to do is walk out into the hallway to the vending machine to get another bag when they run out like it's just an environment where you're disincentivized to move and you're incentivized to eat food that then acts on your nervous system to make you eat more of the food. And I I think that's overwhelmingly the reason why people are fatter than they were before. If you're asking how do people lose weight, then I really think that depends on the the you have to look at the individual person's psychological makeup and and how they how they interact with their own habits and lifestyle. And so I think the overwhelmingly most reliable way to lose weight 
is to track your calories. And, you know, I and I hate calorie calculators because I think it's just a waste of time to make all kinds of assumptions about um, how intense is your physical activity and what is your non-exercise thermal energy expenditure. Like, like they're, they're all wrong and you have to tweak them anyway. Yeah, so correct. what I usually... Ad- what I usually advise clients to do is just say like, look, don't do anything to try to lose weight. If you're reasonably confident that your weight's stable right now, just do what you're doing. Track your body weight for a week, track your calories for a week, track your macros in that time. And then if your weight's stable over that week, you know how many calories makes you weight stable. Cut that by 300. Do it for a week. See number one, do you lose weight? And, you know, and of course, hit the protein target and everything. But, you know, see, number one, do you lose weight? Number two, do you feel like crap? If you're if you're hangry all the time, you need to cut back on your caloric deficit. If you're if you're not losing weight, you need to increase your caloric deficit and just tweak it over the course of a few weeks and then stabilize at the sweet spot where you're comfortably losing weight and ride it out. Now, I think that's the most reliable way to do it. But look, there are some people who just absolutely hate tracking calories. Mm-hmm. There are some people who cannot obey their calorie tracking if there are chips in the house because the mere presence of chips in the house causes them to eat the chips, right? So um, there are people who if they cut their calories 300 that means they wake up three hours into sleep and they stumble into the kitchen and they eat the first quickest thing that's available. And if that's a bag of chips, they're going to eat the bag of chips. So I, I, you really have to understand the person's personality or if you're managing this yourself, you have to understand your own personality. And it may be for some people that the first 20 pounds will come off when they just get rid of all the junk food in the house. You know, So I, I think... And so for some people, uh, when they eat a low-fat diet, they just spontaneously eat less food and the 30 pounds comes off real easy. Other people, that only happens if they eat a low-carbohydrate diet. You know, who knows what's behind this? Sometimes it's, it's just like I think if you, if you do a controlled study, what you'll find is that protein is the most satiating macronutrient per calorie and fat is the least satiating macronutrient per calorie. But that doesn't mean, but like people have done those, this goes back to what we were talking about before. You do the study to be highly controlled, not realistic. And realistic is people aren't rigorously controlling all these things and changing them as isolated variables. Realistic is people are eating complex meals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like I've experimented with this in the past and I know that if I eat a giant salad with no no dressing on it, with no oil, um, I will feel full for a period of time because of the volume. But then an hour later, I'm hungry again. Exactly. And, like I know, I know that some fat in my diet satiates me, and so there's no reason for me to assume that the quantity of fat that I need in my meal to be optimally satiated per calorie is the same quantity of fat that you need in your meal. Right? Mm -hmm. So I, I I think like you must start from the, from the physical laws that it's all calories in calories out in terms of mechanism, but then you need to individualize to the person where look, if you're if you know that 
you if you know that you psychologically you reward yourself with food and or when you're stressed you stress eat and it always comes down to what's the easiest thing to stress eat that's in the house you know for that person that getting rid of those foods in their house is the number one thing that you have to do but then you take someone like me who operates on on just like making a rule and a formula and following it you know it doesn't matter if those chips are in the house you need to track everything and so you just have to figure out what works for a given individual and and um and implement it i so agree we have to take into account those psychological and environmental factors and individualize a diet always because one person may like you said one person might do better on a high fat diet and another person might do better on a carbohydrate a high carbohydrate diet um and i think another problem in regards to losing weight also has to do with those environmental factors what is what are people putting on their bodies what is causing maybe shifts in hormones or shifts in thyroid function and we have to make sure that we include that information in regards to weight loss because if you have something going on internally, you're going to have problems with losing that weight or gaining that weight potentially in another um, area. So, um, and it's expanding actually with the amount of people that are having troubles with hormonal issues, thyroid issues, etc. So, I agree also on the whole obesity thing. So, calories excessive palatable foods are definitely increasing the obesity rate. Yeah, for sure. So what, what, why don't we talk about insulin resistance? Because as well with the obesity rate increasing, I see, especially in the healthcare field, an increase in type two diabetes an increase in insulin resistance. So what do you think is causing this? Well, I think you inadvertently answered your own question, which is obesity is the primary cause of insulin resistance in the general population. But it's it's not the it's not the single factor. So and I, and honestly, I I honestly think that when we talk about insulin resistance, we use wording that makes it sound like the central thing is insulin resistance, and I don't think it is. So what you have in insulin resistance is you have cells that are deliberately, so to speak, um, meaning they have re regulatory mechanisms inside the cell that are where they are stopping themselves from responding to insulin. But they're not just stopping themselves from responding to insulin. They're stopping themselves from responding to anything that makes them take up energy, right? So if you look at a diabetic, you don't just see high glucose in the blood. You see high glucose. You see high triglycerides. You see high fatty acids. You see higher ketone levels than you would otherwise expect. Mm -hmm. You see all forms of energy increasing in the blood. And the main reason for that is that the cells are deciding so to speak that they're the it's in their best interest to not take up that energy and cells have mechanisms to do this because it protects the cells and it's thereby good for the body in a healthy environment 
So even if you weren't obese, if your caloric intake was normal, your diet was on point, your movement is on point, everything is working the way it should, you're always going to have cells refusing to take up energy. You have trillions of cells, so it doesn't matter, right? So if, if one cell says, geez, my mitochondria is really stressed out, I think it would be better if I don't take up that glucose molecule, who cares? Some other of the trillions of cells in your body are going to take up that glucose molecule and nothing's going to happen. It's really when all of those cells are overwhelmed in that way where the preponderance of cells in your entire body are all saying the same thing, we don't want to take up that glucose, where on a whole body systemic level, you're insulin resistant. But the crux of the issue isn't that you're insulin resistant. The crux of the issue is that the preponderance of your cells are refusing to take up the energy and not just the glucose, but also the fatty acids, also mm -hmm. the triglycerides, also the ketones are all accumulating in the blood because they're not, they're not able to be stored properly. They're not able to be burned for energy properly. And there's a chronic excess building up. And so there's basically... Two, you, you can look at what's happening on two levels. One is on the cellular level and the other is on the whole body organismal level. On the cellular level, you can just have too much energy input. That's one reason. Or you can have some deficiency in energy metabolism. If you don't have the B vitamins that you need or the minerals that you need to make things metabolize at the proper rate – or if you don't have the antioxidant support to help that energy burn cleanly and you wind up producing a lot of reactive oxygen species, uh, which are the things that cause oxidative damage that we were talking about earlier, that mm -hmm. biological form of rust, um, either not being able to burn the energy at all or not being able to burn it cleanly is going to signal the cell, don't take up this energy. And so it, it really it really could be an excess of energy or a deficiency in any of those factors. On a whole body level the the and this is kind of the central crux of the matter because let's say that all of your energy burning cells were refusing to burn the energy in theory you should just store it as fat instead of letting it accumulate in the blood and so we have to invoke what's happening in adipose tissue and what happens in adipose tissue is that adipose tissue tries to expand by accumulating all the excess energy but at some point the cells bump into the, the protein-based infrastructure around them. In scientific jargon, it's called a proteoglycan matrix, but it's the, it's the, it's the infrastructure that, that those adipose cells are in. And so as they try to expand and they bump into the surrounding infrastructure, they can't expand anymore, and they all start getting cramped together. And when they get cramped together, the blood vessels that are supposed to nourish those tissues and remove wastes from them can't get into those sites anymore because everything's all cramped together and the blood vessels can't fit. So when this starts happening, you get an environment you, you can have various problems. You can have poor blood delivery, you can have poor removal of waste, you can have poor oxygenation of the tissue, but you have some sort of metabolic failure and the cell and those cells of the adipose tissue stop taking up the fat to store it. Right? So you can't burn energy or you can't burn it cleanly or you have too much of it and you can't – whatever that excess is, you can't store it. And just not being able to burn it or store it is going to make the energy accumulate in the blood. But layered on top of this, 
those adipocytes start calling on the immune system for help. And so immune cells will come and actually the immune system, part of the reason the immune system comes is to try to reorganize the adipose tissue to make it better capable of expanding and also to try to gobble up some of that extra calories itself just to get rid of the excess. Um, but if you're if you're in chronic state of excess and you exceed the ability of the immune system to make those changes, the chronic inflammation becomes a layer that damages your metabolism even further. Because whenever the immune system is activated, it's basically saying, look, there's an emergency here. We don't want to use all this energy for, you know, like, to make your skin healthier or like to make your tissues last longer in old age. Like we need to mobilize to fix this problem right here. And so that's going to impair your thyroid metabolism and everything else. So look, you can have these problems just from being obese because too much energy in the cell, the cell rejects the energy, tries to get into the adipose tissue, adipose tissue runs out of room, boom, metabolic dysfunction. Mm-hmm. But you can also you can also have genetic problems with energy metabolism, or you can have nutrient deficiencies or toxic factors. Conceivably, a whole host of other things could be impairing the ability to burn or store energy. And so it's not necessarily just you ate too many calories. It's you have an excess of energy versus the balance of your ability to do something with it. But that imbalance between how much energy you have and your ability to do something with it is the cause of the metabolic dysfunction that we are rather sloppily calling insulin resistance. Wow, that was a lot. I hope my listeners and myself are able to take all that in. (laughs) There's just so many different factors and the body is just, it's not just black and white ever. So, so many factors that go into everything and I think that becomes a problem when we generalize certain disease states because you never know what is going on and you you can't just paint the full picture by looking at one certain thing so what would be your final thoughts on ways we can potentially alleviate things like obesity and insulin resistance? I know for me, I say the biggest thing is caloric control and having good nutrients in your body, being active, not being super stressed. Of course, I could go on and on about different things we could go into, but what would be your general suggestions Well, honestly, I think you just hit the nail on the head. (laughs) So uh, that's exactly what I would say. So caloric control is is really king here for most people because if you're if you're talking about the general population, then we're talking about metabolic dysfunction secondary to this crisis of obesity that we have. And so, you know, if you're if you're talking to someone who has a BMI of 32. There's zero question that the main thing that they need to do to attain metabolic control is attain caloric control and healthy body composition. There's a zero question. Yeah. And so we we had talked about that you know in detail before. So just you know just revert back to that. But that's but it's not the only thing, right? Because honestly, people's nutrition is not on point for the most part. So people could eat more nutrient-dense diets and that could be protective. There are obese people who are healthy. Why are they healthy? Well, because 
they're either good at storing fat, <laughs> mainly because they're good at storing fat, right? Like if their adipose tissue is able to expand in a way that doesn't get crushed, then boom, health, right? It's not being fat that causes metabolic dysfunction per se. It's it's really the inability to get fatter healthy, uh, the inability to get fatter efficiently, right? Like the, the real problem with obesity is that you're running out of room to store that fat without negative consequences um, for for the ability to vascularize that tissue. And so one person is going to be different than someone else. But it's also the case that if you're obese and you have poor antioxidant intake and you have B vitamin sub, you know, maybe not classical deficiencies, but you don't get enough B vitamins, like your energy metabolism is being poisoned and, you know, and your gut microbiome is terrible. Like you just have multiple things poisoning your metabolic health. And if you address those other things, it's not going to replace optimizing your body composition, but it could be 40 or 50% of the battle for you. And then if you take someone who's lean and has insulin resistance, that's not as common. But in that case, then obviously their body composition isn't their number one target. If their body composition is good, there has to be other things going on. And so the first one that I look at are the nutrient density of the diet. Um, really the nutrient density of the diet and, and the health of the gut microbiome. So I think that really comes down to, you mentioned eating a diversity of foods. That's important. So diversity is your best protection against nutrient deficiencies and nutrient and, um, against deficiencies and toxicities. But I think it's really, I think there are certain food groups that are really underappreciated. So I think most people would do well to try to eat organ meats. For example, eating liver once a week is a great habit or to try to make up for what they're missing when they do that with supplements, uh, eating more nose to tail in, in that sense by consuming the bones and organ meats of an animal can do a lot to get you to a more nutrient-dense place. I think a lot of people, most people either need to consume dairy products or need to be really mindful of whether they're hitting their calcium requirement. Uh, so I think everyone should generally be getting about a gram a day, give or take a little bit. And apart from that, I think if you try to eat a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables – including green leaves, and try to err on the side of, of raw and lightly cooked food with a lower proportion of your diet that's maybe 20% of your diet that's subject to a lot of intense heat and, and other what, you know, I think, I think baking is okay, steaming is good, raw is good, uh, pan frying in oil, especially if it smokes, is kind of a no-no. If you're good at controlling the smoke, still probably keep that to 20% of your diet, probably eat deep fried food fairly close to never. Um, if you do those things and you maintain good caloric control and you pick most of your diet as fresh whole foods, then I think you're pretty much covering your bases of nutrient density. And uh, nutrient density and caloric control, I think, are the two big kickers there.
Yeah, for sure. And I also love that you mentioned about the gut microbiome, because if you have some gut dysbiosis, you're going to have alterations in how your body processes nutrients and in your hormone levels. So I think making sure to include gut healthy foods, pro and prebiotics, um, have those short chain fatty acids um, can make a huge difference for overall health as well. So absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking your time to come on my podcast. You just have so much knowledge. Thanks for having me, Lisey. You're welcome. So much knowledge. So if there's any way other than your website, my listeners can find you, can see your content, please let them know. That way they can um, reach out and learn some more information. All right. Well, if you want to listen to my podcast, you can search your favorite podcast app for Mastering Nutrition or for my name, Chris Masterjohn. I am at Chris Masterjohn, spelled just like my name on all my social media. So you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Snapchat. And the home for all my content is ChrisMasterjohnPhD.com. So either going there or just Googling me will always lead you to the right place. <laughs> Google always works. Easiest thing. For sure. Awesome. Yeah. I once I once got a Facebook message from Chris Masterjohn who said, hey, I Googled myself, but all I could find was you. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay. Well, thank you so oh, much some other, again. There's some other, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Anyway, Google me and all you'll find it's me. Thanks, Lacey. Thank you. Have a great night. You too.